Monroe Church of Christ on this beautiful Mother's Day. We're glad that you could join us for our Bible study. Uh, we are studying the Gospel of John, and we continue to press on in the, the latter chapters of that Gospel, and we will soon be nearing the end of it and preparing for another course of study here in our Sunday morning Bible study period. Not sure yet what that will look like. Um, it may be that we'll be doing that in person. And um, if that's the case, we'll be live streaming that as well. Um, but you may get to, to be involved in more discussion uh, as a result of that. And um, if we're not doing that in person, of course, we'll, we'll live stream it. it, it but we're, we're hoping that sometime uh, this summer we'll be back in person for our Bible classes. And we hope that you'll continue to join us uh, as we do that. Let's look at the Gospel of John this morning. We, we, we've been talking about this conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples prior to his death, and he's been giving them some information about what's to come. Now, to this point, it's not clear that uh, they fully realized everything that's going to take place, everything that's going to transpire with, with Jesus, with his death and his resurrection, but he's trying to tell them about it. And he's, he's repeating himself quite a bit because they're not quite understanding. But there is a theme in this conversation, and it's a theme that's consistent in the Gospel of John from the very beginning, that Jesus is the Son of God and that he comes from the Father and that what the Father does, Jesus does. And what Jesus does is as if the Father does it. And therefore, what he gives to us, we too uh, will be working on behalf of the Father for the kingdom. And that's what he says to his disciples. That applies to us as well as spiritual descendants of theirs. But he talks about, and in this specific passage that we've been considering, he talks about the fact that he's leaving, but there will be something else that's coming. Uh, the, the language calls it a paraclete. Translation in the English versions is helper or comforter. This is one who goes on a journey, one who accompanies you, one who bears your burdens, and one who, uh, as Jesus describes it, will enlighten you, and, and, and lead and guide you in your ministry. So we're in chapter 16, and Jesus is talking about the fact that he's going to be going away, and uh, we'll just pick up there where we kind of left off last, last week. Uh, let's look at verse 5. Now I'm going to him who sent me, that is to God, and none of you ask me where are you going, but because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So he's saying this has to happen because the next step has to transpire. The next, the next steps in this process have to occur. And that involves me leaving. Okay, And he's, he's kind of shrouding the, the very blunt fact that he's going to be killed. He's going to be put to death. Um, Verse 8, and he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, and concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer see me, and concerning judgment because the ruler of the world has been judged. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth, and he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. 
All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. So he's describing the Holy Spirit in this passage and saying that the, the prerequisites for the Spirit coming uh, to dwell with you are me leaving. See, Jesus has to go away and he's going to the Father. And that's important that he does that. He says, because if I don't do that, then none of this matters and none of these things that are supposed to happen are going to happen. But, <clears throat> excuse me, when the Spirit does come, he says, it will, it, he will carry the authority that I have because he's going to share with you what I'm sharing with you. And we already know because Jesus has said it repeatedly that he is sharing what God is sharing. So there's this kind of uh, chain of command is not the, the best term to use, but there's this process by which what God wishes us to know, he gives to Jesus and Jesus brings that message. When Jesus leaves in order to make all things right, the helper comes, the Holy Spirit comes, and what it gives to us is also from the Father through Christ. So there is this interconnected relationship continuing to be described between God, Christ, the Spirit, and us. And so uh, he will come and will speak as though Jesus is speaking, who also speaks as though God is speaking. And so verse 14, he says, he will glorify me. For he will take of mine, that is what Jesus possesses, and he will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. So again, Jesus is emphasizing that there is no distinction in the spiritual sense between God and Christ. Okay, God has this wisdom, this knowledge, this mystery to be uncovered, um, this, this teaching, this gospel and that it comes through Christ, and the Spirit will continue to uh, produce the result of that message, and that is as if he's speaking for God because he is speaking for God through Christ. Verse 16, a little while and you will no longer see me, and again a little while and you will see me. Now some of his disciples then said to one another, what is this thing he is telling us? So Jesus repeats himself, a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while you will see me. And because I go to the Father, uh, or excuse me, that's, that's the apostles asking that. It's in red letters here. It probably shouldn't be. Um, but the apostles are saying, why, why is he saying this? What does this mean? They repeat what Jesus said to them. And so then Jesus repeats himself beginning in verse 18. So they were saying, well, what is this that he says a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Now, Jesus knew that they wished to question him, and he said to them, are you deliberating together about this that I said a little while and you will not see me and again a little while you will see me? So it's this very simple statement. A little while you won't see me and then a little while you will see me. And they ask the question amongst themselves, what does that mean? And Jesus says, are you, are you not understanding this? Are you arguing amongst yourself what it, is, what it, what it means? Um, verse 20, he gives an explanation. Truly, truly, I say to you, that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. Isn't that a wonderful thing about being a child of God? That there, there are things in this world that are hard. There are things that are difficult. Um, we read, Paul writes in Romans that uh, the Lord works all things for good for those that love him. And sometimes we look at that and say, well, gee, I, I don't feel like everything in my life is good. I don't feel like everything is going well. Uh, and, and, and it's not going to be the case that everything in life is, is good. 
There are bad times, there are hard times, there are painful moments, there are moments of difficulty and struggle. But when we serve the Lord, we see beyond the pain of this world to something greater. And Jesus is speaking to that idea that the apostles are going to grieve because he's going to be gone. But their grief and the source of their grief is a source of joy for the rest of the world. For although Christ is put to death or will be put to death, in that death and in that resurrection more specifically comes the, the, the victory over sin and death. So as much as they are going to grieve, their grief will be turned to joy because of what's going to happen as the result of Christ's action. And God does that for all of us. He turns our grief to joy because we might lament and, and cry out and complain and, and be in pain for this world, but when we begin to look beyond that and see that there's a better day waiting for us, those who are, who are faithful in Christ, then we can have hope. And there's joy in having that hope. Jesus uses this example in verse 21. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. That's a wonderful uh, little illustration that Jesus uses. You know, labor is a difficult process, painful. And how interesting we're talking about this on Mother's Day, because it's a day when we celebrate motherhood. We celebrate the, the women in our lives that have contributed in a mothering way to our development. Uh, that journey began with a great deal of pain. That journey began with, uh, with uh, an arduous process of labor, pain, and, and trial. And every, every mother has their story of giving birth. But no one looks at their child and goes, oh, boy, they weren't worth it, all that pain. No, they, they endure that pain, and it's painful in the time. But later on, it's smiles and it's joy because your child has been brought into the world, and you're able to hold them, and you're able to begin this journey of motherhood. And Jesus uses that example to describe what it is like for us and what it specifically was like for the apostles to endure this process of Christ's trial and death and resurrection. And we too in this world suffer great pain, but what comes out of it, what is the result of that pain, makes it so worth it. And when we look at what Jesus has done, we don't see the pain and we don't grieve for the loss. We celebrate for what it's given us. Interesting you know, growing up, partaking of communion. Uh, and, and if you're not, uh, weren't raised in the churches of Christ, then it may be different for you. In the churches of Christ, we partake of the communion uh, on a weekly basis, generally. And we do so um, in a little bit different way than probably some of the other, other groups and denominations do. Um, but there was a time, I say that for me because it was my experience, there was a time, and, and there are those who, who partake of it in a very solemn way. They take it very seriously, the statement, do this in remembrance of me, that Jesus says when he blesses and passes this, this emblem to his apostles, which we've read about. They take that, do this in remembrance of me, in a very literal way in that they try to fashion around the communion time a period of remembrance. I think that's good. Um, but their way of remembering, and this is some, some do this, their way of remembering is to talk about the death, the suffering, 
of Jesus. And I can remember growing up, there were those who would always, they would get up and give a little, uh, little talk about the communion, some encouragement uh, about what we're to be thinking about. And they seem to be urging that we should be thinking about the pain and the suffering and the beating and the bleeding and the nailing to the cross because that's remembering Jesus, all of that suffering and what he did for you. There are songs in our hymnals about the suffering of Christ on the cross. And it, it remains a, a part of the communion experience to sit and think and focus and be sorrowful and be in pain and turmoil because of what our Savior went through. The remembrance of his death and the acknowledgement of what that did is very important. I, I don't deny that. And I certainly don't question the hearts of those that encourage that way of thinking while partaking the communion. But I would offer this to you. Um, when I die, I want my children to remember me one day. I want my grandchildren, should I meet them, to remember and think fondly of me. Today, by the way, is the 17th anniversary of the death of my grandfather, my paternal grandfather. We were very close, uh, he and I, and that was a difficult time. He had cancer. He, he dealt with that disease for about six months and then passed away. That was a painful time. That was um, a very significant time for me developmentally because of the age I was at and, and going through that and seeing my dad experience that and the rest of the family. Um, on May 9th, every year, I, I remember him. I remember him because he's, he's gone now. And there are other times when I, he comes to mind. I hope that my family and my children and grandchildren will remember me one day. But do you know what I don't do when I remember my grandfather? I don't think about his last days. I don't think about what he looked like when he was ravaged with cancer. I don't think about those final words that we spoke to one another and the suffering he was in. I don't. I choose to remember him for the wonderful moments and the great memories because that's what remembrance is. It's a recalling of the blessings of something and not just the pain that existed as a part of it. I'm thankful my grandfather's no longer suffering. He was a Christian and for 17 years we've missed him and been without him. But our remembrance of him at this point is joyful and it's the good times. It's the vacations and the, the times that we, we went fishing and the, the times we... We spent together uh, and, and me learning and being blessed by that relationship with Jesus. And I think that's what he's saying here is that there's going to come a time when you're going to be in pain because of what I've experienced, but there will be joy associated with it. In a similar way, personal opinion here, when we're partaking of communion, to do that in remembrance of him, just like I want my family to remember me when I'm gone, I don't want them to remember the, the physical pain or the deterioration of my body or any suffering that I might endure. I don't want them to remember me hooked up to machines or equipment to keep me alive. I want them to remember me for the joy and the good times that we experience together. And I believe that that's what Jesus wants us to remember when he says, remember me. He wants us to remember the blessing that came from his death burial and resurrection. And I think he's saying that here to the apostles. You're going to be in pain. You're going to be sorrowful. You're going to grieve because I'm gone, but the world will rejoice. These are the labor pains, the, the thing that must be endured in order to have the blessing on the other side. And the blessing is where the joy is found. When we remember Jesus, we should remember the blessings 
not just the suffering. The suffering was just a means to an end. Okay, it's important for what it brought us, but it doesn't necessarily mean that's something that should be dwelt on as we are partaking of emblems meant to, uh, meant to symbolize and proclaim uh, where our faith lies. And I think that's the encouragement Jesus gives his own apostles. So I don't think I'm off base here because he says, you're going to grieve, but there's joy in this. And I want you to focus on the joy. And I want you to, to be strengthened by the fact that there's going to be joy and blessing to come. Because he says in verse 22, therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice and no one, no one will take your joy away from you. I'm going to give you an everlasting joy because of what I'm about to do. In the day you will not question me about anything. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be made full. This is a curious passage and it echoes a little bit from the Sermon on the Mount when we read in Matthew when he says, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you'll find, knock and the door shall be open. Uh, does this mean that God just gives us everything we want if we ask it in Jesus' name? If we ask in just the right way, does that mean we're going to get... If, if you've prayed for something and it didn't happen, does that mean you did wrong in your prayer? I don't think Jesus is telling us that God is a spiritual vending machine. I don't believe that's the lesson here, that God will give you whatever you ask if you just ask in Jesus' name. No, he's saying that God provides for us. God cares for us and loves us. He's not, I don't believe, literally teaching that anything will be given to us if we just ask the right way. I think what he's teaching is that because of Christ, the door is now open. We can now approach God for our needs and our wants and, and for the comfort we, we yearn for. And we can approach God to have a relationship with him because of Christ. So he, he does say, that anything you ask the Father in my name will be given to you. He's making a compare and contrast here because the door was shut to God. The, the relationship with God was not possible in this close and intimate way that we now take joy in. The relationship with God was based in the law and it was there for a period of time to, to accomplish certain things. And Jesus is saying, that if you ask for the, uh, the Father for anything in my name, you'll receive it. And that's not a literal statement that God is beholden to our request if we ask the right way. That would make him that spiritual vending machine. That would put us in the driver's seat of that relationship, and we're not. And the way we can tell that that's a compare and contrast is because the very next verse, 24, reflects on that contrast. He says, until now, you have asked for nothing in my name. Okay. Up until this point, you haven't had Christ to stand in the gap of that relationship between God and man. Now we will. Now we do. And so, therefore, we are, have access to so much more, and our relationship with God is so much richer because of Christ. So don't get lost in the weeds of literally trying to understand what he's saying or thinking that your prayers must not be working right because you're not using the formula. He says... And remember the context. He says, in that day, that's the day of grief that will turn into joy. You're not going to question me about anything. Once this happens, 
Once the Spirit comes, because that's what he's, the, the context of this conversation, the Spirit coming. Once this happens and once all has been revealed to you, you're not going to wonder anymore. You're not going to have any more questions because you will now have an intimate relationship with the Father through me and the Spirit to guide you and all your questions will be answered because of that. You'll be able to talk to him and he can respond to you and there will be this, this uh, dynamic connection with God that hasn't been possible before. He says in verse 24, but now it is. Verse 25, these things I've spoken to you in figurative language. An hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but will tell you plainly of the Father. Now, why is, is there a time coming when he'll be more forthright and more clear and more direct? Because they're not ready. He even says, there's other things I'd like to tell you, but I just don't think you can handle it right now. There are things in the Bible that we don't understand. There are, th we can read stories and see descriptions from the Old Testament all the way through the end where God is dealing with his people, but he doesn't show them the full picture. And you can, talk, you can think about um, some of the things in the Old Testament dealing with the law. When God gives them law, you look at Leviticus 11. Look at all of the rules about what they can and can't eat and what is considered clean and unclean. Is that because God is arbitrary and just looking for ways to make their life difficult? No, it's because they're a nomadic people at that point, struggling to find food and to, and to survive, and God is giving them things that are not wise to eat and telling them to stay away from them. Now, he's very serious about it being law and it being regulation, and there were punishments for disobeying it, but why was that given to them? Well, if you look at the things that are on the do not eat list in Leviticus chapter 11, you can see where medical science and microbiologists would confirm that those would not be the safe things to eat for a nomadic people in the desert uh, thousands of years ago, okay? We're avoiding pork, okay? We're, we're trying to, and we're avoiding rabbits. He mentions rabbits. So we're avoiding tularemia. We're avoiding trigonosis. We're avoiding all these things that could harm us that we can't see. Now, did God say to them, well, you see, there's these microorganisms. They're called germs or bacteria or viruses. They're, okay, he didn't go through all that. Why? They couldn't understand that. Now, thousands of years later, in fact, very recently in the relative history, we've discovered those things. We've discovered the transmission of illness through contact. We've discovered how to disinfect things. We've discovered what makes things safe to eat and how to, how to prepare and cook food properly. And all those things are on the table, but God had to keep his people alive. And so he set these rules for them. That's one example. We, we look at Jesus himself and the fact that he was rejected by his own people and put to death. Paul clarifies that in the book of Romans. We've been studying that on Wednesday nights. And he says, hey, that was purposeful. He clouded their minds for a period of time so that they would put him to death because that had to happen. That was required for all of this to take place and for, for this, this plan to come to fruition. And Jesus is also reiterating that, that I, I've been a little bit figurative in how I've explained things. And I know there's things you're not ready for yet. But there's going to be a time when you will be ready for it. There's going to be a time when I will speak plainly to you. 
Jesus isn't being deceptive. He's not covering things up to try and keep us in the dark and keep us guessing. That's not how God operates. But God does have understanding and sympathy for our human minds and different times throughout the story from Genesis to Revelation and maybe even today, there are things that we just aren't ready to understand yet. And God says, that's okay. Understand it this way for now. And one day you'll understand it fully. I believe that we have a lot more understanding of this than the apostles did because we're looking at it from the rear view mirror. We're looking at Jesus and seeing everything that's happened after and we understand what he was here to do. We understand these figurative things and we kind of chuckle at the apostles because they don't get it over and over and over. But had we been in their shoes, we would be confused too because Jesus is using figurative language to explain to them he's about to die for the sins of the world, be resurrected and go to be with the Father so that we can have a home in heaven. That's what he's saying. We understand it because we're ready to understand it. We have the story. They didn't understand it because they weren't ready yet. And Jesus would reveal these mysteries to them. When we read some of the stories about him after the resurrection appearing to the apostles, he does reveal things. He opens their mind. They're able to understand. The Holy Spirit is a part of that equation too. When he comes, he provides understanding and clarity for the apostles. You look at the apostles after the day of Pentecost, they're like different people. They seem to have a boldness and an acumen and an understanding that wasn't what they had just a little earlier. That's because the Holy Spirit opens the mind to understand. Are there things today that we still don't understand? Oh, absolutely. We might understand a little better the, the, the plan of salvation and, and Christ and where he fits in this and how he has been the center focus of our relationship with God from the beginning of time. But there are things I don't know. I don't know what, I don't know what heaven looks like. I have people ask, and when, when you're in ministry long enough, you'll do a lot of funerals. I do, I do, I've done a handful of weddings too. Um, but I've done a lot of funerals. Uh, quite frankly, the funerals are easier um, <laughs> because that's a time of grief and people just want to honor those that are gone and then move on. Um, weddings, there's a lot of work that goes into weddings. It's an important day and it lives on in infamy and you have to do a good job. Um, but in the, in, in the times I've worked with families surrounding the death of a loved one, I often meet with the family and we talk about the, their, their departed um, loved one, family member, friend, what have you. And they share stories. And I try to get an under, if I didn't know the person very well, I try to get a, a deeper understanding of who they were. And um, oftentimes in the midst of, particularly if it's in the midst of very deep grief, where it's a younger person that's died or a, a person that died unexpectedly, a family member grieving will ask me the question um, about what the afterlife is like. Um, I, can, I can remember the first funeral I ever did. I was 20 years old. Um, hadn't, been a, hadn't been a preacher all that long. And uh, a young man who actually was a distant relative of mine, but a, a closer relative to a member of our congregation, uh, who had a very, very difficult past, lots of issues with legal trouble, criminal activity, drug use. He committed suicide. Uh, he, he was cremated. They were bringing his remains back to be um, interred at a family cemetery. And I was asked to do a small graveside service for a young man who killed himself. 
uh, in his abuse of drugs. Um, that's a difficult task for a 20-year-old. And you have to think about and consider a lot of things and ask a lot of questions. I don't know what happens to that young man. I don't know what to say. I've, I've had people who are in their late 30s, early 40s who died of cancer or some other disease, and a loved one will say, will I recognize them in heaven? I mean, I don't know. I, I think so, but I don't know. There are still mysteries yet to be discovered, and some of them we will not discover till we get there. Just like the apostles wouldn't quite understand this and this stuff about the helper coming and Jesus leaving until it happened. We're not going to understand certain things until God's ready for us to understand it. And that's probably a good thing because there's some things that God could tell us that might make our brain short circuit. So I'm glad he gives us what we need when we need it. And that's what Jesus is doing for his apostles here. Um, so let's continue. Uh, let's go back up to verse 25. These things I've spoken to you in figurative language. An hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but I will tell you plainly of the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will request of the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. I am leaving the world again and going to the Father. Let's read that again. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will request of the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved. In other words, he's saying, you're going to request something in my name, just what he's told them. He said, in that day. So you're going to reach out for this relationship to God, and you're going to do it in my name. And I'm not saying, okay, I'm going to go and talk to God now about what you are talking to me about. It's, it's even more direct than that. It's, it got, Jesus isn't just a proxy for our relationship with Christ. No, Jesus is, the, is, is what makes a relationship with God possible. He's not just a proxy for a relationship with God. He's what makes a true relationship with God possible. So he says, I don't, I don't say to you that I'll request of the Father on your behalf, not like the high priests, by, read the book of Hebrews, not like the high priests that they've been dealing with all their life. They, they, don't give their, they don't give something to this person and then he goes and hands it off. It's not a game of telephone. This is a true relationship with God on the basis of faith in Christ, not necessarily literally transitive relationship with Christ. For the Father himself loves you because, why? Because you've loved me and, and have believed that I came forth from the Father. So when we accept that Christ is who he says he is and he is, is the Son of God and is God, when we accept that and we believe that he is who he says he is, then we have a relationship with God and then we can speak to God and then we can engage with God in a deep way. Verse 28, I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. I'm leaving the world again and going to the Father. This is Jesus getting pretty deep with his disciples now as time is drawing near that he will leave the world. And we'll continue on this journey 
discussing these things in the weeks to come. Really glad you could join us. Uh, hope you're having a wonderful Mother's Day, whether, whether you are a mother or, or whether you have been a mother to someone. And if you're not a mother, uh, there's plenty of those folks too. And plenty of people who, for whom this day is a little bit painful because either they have been a mother and they've lost uh, a child or maybe they've lost their own mother. Maybe you had a difficult relationship with your mother. Maybe it wasn't positive or loving. Or maybe you've always wanted to be a mother and, and you're not yet. All of those things are true. We want to be mindful that there are those who struggle with days like today. Uh, but you're loved by God and you're loved by us. And we hope you'll join us today for our worship service, which will begin uh, in the 11 o'clock hour right here, wherever you're watching this. We'll see you then.